verses 1 through 23. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. And Job again took up his discourse and said, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood, and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. Let my enemy be as the wicked, and let him who rises up against me be as the unrighteous. For what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off, when God takes away his life? Will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? Will he take delight in the Almighty? Will he call upon God at all times? I will teach you concerning the hand of God. What is with the Almighty I will not conceal. Behold, all of you have seen it yourselves. Why then have you become altogether vain? This is the portion of a wicked man with God and the heritage that oppressors receive from the Almighty. If his children are multiplied, it is for the sword. And his descendants have not enough bread. Those who survive him, the pestilence buries. And his widows do not weep. Though he heap up silver like dust and pile up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the righteous will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. He builds his house like a moth's, like a booth that a watchman makes. He goes to bed rich, but will do so no more. He opens his eyes and his wealth is gone. Terrors overtake him like a flood. In the night, a whirlwind carries him off. The east wind lifts him up and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls at him without pity. He flees from its power in headlong flight. It claps its hands at him and hisses at him from its place. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. One of the most important doctrines that was recovered during the time of the Reformation was the doctrine of justification by faith alone. This doctrine answers the question, how will God's people be considered or counted as righteous and gain entrance in the kingdom of God, knowing that we are, by nature, unrighteous? It concerns the inability of man and the ability of God. This doctrine teaches that we are justified even when we are not practically righteous. We are declared righteous by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ and his finished work alone. Not by anything that we have done or accomplished in this life. This view is considered to go up against the Roman Catholic Church and surprisingly even some Reformed and Protestant ministers who have taught that we are initially justified by faith at first, but then on Judgment Day, we will be justified by our works. We will have to prove ourselves and that we are fit to enter into heaven. So to them, we are saved by faith and works. Now, this is not what we believe the Bible teaches as a whole. The grounds of our justification 
or our righteousness is not our works. It is not even our faith. The grounds of our justification is Jesus Christ, what he has done for us on the cross and when he was raised from the dead. He said from the cross, it is finished. All your sins are atoned for. And once you believe this, you are justified by the grace of God. God is the source of our justification, not ourselves. We do not contribute an inch or even a speck to our justification. And once justified, always justified. Why? Because God did it, not you. He did this so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. If it was left up to us, we would never be justified. It's an impossible task. But once justified by God, we are always justified. And if God declares someone righteous and blameless, we have no ground to condemn. And this is what brings us to our present text. It is this that we must keep in mind as we consider Job's second uh, final speech. It's his second out of three of his final speeches to his friends. Job's so-called friends have been falsely accusing Job of being an unjustified and unforgiven sinner. It would be one thing if they called him a sinner, for we're all sinners. But they were saying that he was a sinner who was unforgiven and that he was under God's judgment for his sins. So first, Job defends himself and declares his assurance that he is righteous in God's sight. Secondly, he says a prayer of God's judgment on his accusers. Then thirdly, he turns to his accusers and warns them of God's judgment. First, Job begins his speech with an oath and a declaration of his innocence. And in this oath, he identifies who he pledges to, and it is who he believes has been the cause of all of his suffering. He says, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter. Uh, See, this summarizes the spiritual dilemma that Job has been in since the third chapter of this book. He went back and forth between hopelessness to hope in God, from accusing God of wrong, to seeking God as his only and ultimate refuge and strength. His only hope as he is still the God of all truth. And now he makes an oath to God because he knows that it is this God who has given him life. And he is the one who has ultimate authority. He says, as long as I live, as long as my breath is in me, and the spirit of God, that is the breath of God, or the breath from God. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's saying the life that he has given me. As long as that life is in my nostrils. My lips will not speak falsehood. And my tongue will not utter deceit. For many of us. Uh, we may be led to think that this is a bold statement. But we must remember the context. He is defending himself against those who have been accusing him of being an unbeliever and under God's judgment. 
So now, what does he have, tangibly speaking, to hold on to? He has lost everything. What does he have to hold on to that he can see? Well, as Jesus taught, you'll know a tree by its fruit. And Peter, as well as James, urged us to confirm our calling and election. Because what confirms the fact that Job is, in fact, in the right with God? Well, it is evident by the fruit of his faith. He says, far be it from me, or let me be cursed, as he looks to his friends to say that you are right when you say that I am condemned. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. Didn't David say something similar in Psalm 26? Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. And I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. As for me, I shall walk in my integrity. But listen to what he says immediately following. He says, redeem me and be gracious to me. Acknowledging his own need. Acknowledging his own fallenness and sinfulness. So in Job's case, and in our own, when we speak of integrity, we're not talking about sinless perfection. It is a direction of the heart and a direction of life. Job is saying that what he practices on the outside is true to what he believes on the inside. That's what integrity is. So he holds fast to his righteousness and will not let it go. Uh, The word for righteousness here can also be translated as his justification or his right standing with God. Because when he says his righteousness, he's not claiming that he made himself righteous by his works. Because true righteousness comes down from heaven. We cannot make ourselves righteous. God is the one who both declares us righteous and internally makes us righteous from the inside out. So when his friends have been denying the fact that he is a justified believer, when they assault and accuse God's chosen servant, they are denying the work of God. They are denying the fact that Job was declared blameless and righteous, and also they are denying that he has been transformed by the grace of God, for the glory of God. So in turn, they are denying the work of God. Now fast forward to the New Testament, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound like Satan? Doesn't that sound like the scribes who blasphemed the Holy Spirit and equated the work of God with that of Satan? That is the work of the accuser, to accuse the saints of God and deny His work for them and in them. To deny that they have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. But Job says that his heart, in this case, that is speaking of his conscience, does not reproach him or disapprove of him for any of his days. Now, although we must qualify much of what Job says, like when he challenges God, when he accuses God of treating him unjustly, as he justifies himself and not God, These are grave errors on the part of Job, yet he is right in defending himself against his accusers. This is not just Job being self-righteous, though partly it is, 
But it is also repeating the truth of what God repeatedly affirms about Job. In chapter 1, chapter 2, and later in chapter 42, God said that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man. And this is a picture of our Lord Jesus who would also appeal to his identity countless times and justify himself before his accusers. I always do the things that are pleasing to my Father, he says. Now can we in good conscience... Say it that way. I always do what is pleasing to the Father. Well, no, but, but this, beloved, is our hope and what we hold on fast to. This ought to be our response to the accuser of our souls when he whispers in our ears and denies our status as children of God. We ought to respond with, I hold fast my righteousness, which is found Only in Jesus Christ. Because his righteousness is perfect. Although I strive for perfection. I strive to make my election sure. But I am not perfect yet. I will fail and there will be seasons of failure. Yet Jesus has fulfilled it all for me. Once and for all. And here. There is a warning. For both the accuser. And the accusers who follow in his ways. That there is a judgment for those. Who set themselves up against the Lord. And against his anointed. So secondly. Job prays. He prays what we call an imprecatory prayer. Or a curse. On his enemies. Whom he thought were his friends. He prays for judgment to come upon them. He says let my enemy. Be as the wicked. And let him who rises up against me be as the unrighteous. From this point on, the text will begin to sound a lot like Bildad and Zophar's speeches from chapter 18 and 20, speaking about the wrath of God and the fate of the wicked. But the difference is, he is not speaking about the wicked in general. That's one thing to notice. Bildad and Zophar were insinuating that Job was wicked because he was suffering. Job, on the other hand is speaking much like David does in Psalm 2, speaking about whoever is opposing him. Why? Well, because he is a child of God. He is an anointed one of God. And although Job will receive some lashings, he he will receive some correction from God, he will repent of the way he challenged and questioned God's goodness, yet this is true. He is a child of God. They are messing with a chosen servant of God. And if they continue, they will face judgment as he asks in his prayer. For what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off? When God takes away his life? Will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? Will he take delight in the Almighty? Will he call upon God at all times? I think the answer he's looking for is no. But the good news is, That later Job will intercede and pray for his friends and they will be forgiven. But for now, he will warn them of the coming judgment if they continue to slander and attack him. And I believe that this warning was heeded because after this speech, there is silence from Job's friends. So thirdly, Job warns them of God's judgment. But he begins by first saying, I will be your teacher. 
Imagine the look on their faces. These are the guys that traveled from far off to come to Job to teach him. These are the wise men. And they were there to tell him what he ought to do in light of his recent dilemma. But Job says, not anymore. I will teach you. I will teach you concerning the hand of God. I will teach you how God uses his power. I will not conceal it. Because they have seen the evidence for themselves. He is suffering, yet he is innocent. So he challenges them when he asks, Why then have you become altogether vain? Why are you talking nonsense? What you have spoken is not wisdom. In fact, later Paul would say that the wisdom of God is found in the cross. It is found in the suffering of the innocent. The most innocent man who has ever lived suffered. And this man would go through one of the most painful forms of death. Crucified for the sins of his people. So Job says to his friends, consider the portion of the wicked. Again, this sounds very similar, almost word for word, with the closing of Zophar's speech in chapter 20, verse 29. But the difference is that Job is not referring to the same group that Zophar referred to. He turns it around on them. They are the wicked. Job is speaking of those who are maligning God's innocent suffering servant. He says, this is the portion of a wicked man with God and the heritage that oppressors receive from the Almighty. His friends have been oppressing him with their words, and if they continue, this will be their fate. He lists four ways that they will suffer under the judgment of God. First, their families will be destroyed. If they have many children, they will be born only to be killed by the sword. And his descendants will not have enough bread to eat. They will starve from famine or they will die from disease. And there will be no one to mourn them, not even their widows. Second, the innocent will inherit their wealth. Their wealth is made up of silver and clothing. He heaps up silver like dust and piles up clothing like clay. Dust and clay are parallel to show that these things, like man who is made of dust and clay, will return to the dust one day. Silver and clothing are not worth as much as he thinks because it all perishes. And he will not even wear it. The righteous will wear his clothing and the innocent will divide the silver. Just like Proverbs 13 verse 22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Third, they will not have security in their most secure place, their homes. In fact, their homes are fragile and temporary. He says that he builds his house like a moth's cocoon. Or a booth that a watchman makes, which is someone who watches the fields during harvest time to make sure the animals don't come and steal from the harvest. These houses are temporary, only for a season and fragile. It reminds me of when Jesus taught about the man who built his house on sand. The rain fell and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. He continues, The wicked man goes to bed rich, but will do so no more. He opens his eyes, and his wealth is gone. Everything that the enemies of God and his people possess will be gone one day. And just like if the stock market crashes today, it will be gone suddenly. 
Fourth, they will be swept away by the flood of judgment. The terrors of death and judgment that was mentioned by all three of his friends at one point or another is now set forth as a warning against his friends who have yet to feel this terror. And they overtake the wicked man like a flood. Think of a tsunami or the floodwaters that overtook the world in the time of Noah. And how chaotic and devastating it was to be under the judgment of God. And God not only reveals himself in the whirlwind, as it is mentioned throughout scripture, but with the whirlwind comes judgment. Thinking of being in the way of a tornado. And this whirlwind will carry the wicked man off, like it says in Hosea chapter 8, verse 7. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. Then he gets specific and speaks of the east wind from the desert that lifts him up and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. The east wind is used of the Lord as a tool for his judgment in Jeremiah 18, verse 17. And it is even referred to as the wind of the Lord in Hosea chapter 13, verse 15. Job even personifies the east wind as it hurls at him without pity. He flees from its power in headlong flight. It claps its hands at him. The east wind mocks him. And it hisses at him from its place. Reminds me of the Lord who looks down on the nations and how they rage and plot in vain against him and against his anointed. And what does the Lord do as he sits on his throne in heaven? He laughs. He holds them in derision, which means he mocks them. So here he says the east wind used of the Lord will mock them. Now, as we consider Job's confidence in his right standing with God and his warning of judgment to those who malign and slander him, isn't it a similar warning that we have for those who malign and slander and heckle and reject our Lord Jesus Christ? For he is the only way that man can stand righteous before God. I was watching a a video clip of a well-known celebrity honoring uh, another well-known celebrity. And he began to list off all these charities that this well-known celebrity had given to. And it was countless. Uh, I lost count. It was probably in the 20s or 30s. Giving to charity is a good thing. But the ultimate question that I ask about anyone who is being honored without denying that they did good or that they should be honored, but my concern is, has this person received or rejected God's suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, and who Jesus said he was? Jesus said, for unless you believe that I am he, right, the strict translation of I am he is I am. I am that I am. Unless you believe that I am that I am, your God and Savior, you will die in your sins. Because despite all the good that this man has done for humanity, it all means nothing in regard to his eternal state. If he has not received by faith the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul says at the end of the first letter to the Corinthians, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And in the context, he's speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So the question is, has he maligned? Has he rejected the Savior? Has he rejected Jesus' identity, which he revealed? Or has he bowed the knee? Have you bowed the knee to Christ? Consider that just as the accuser, the serpent Satan, once questioned God's word in the beginning with Adam and Eve, he also questioned Job's status and identity. Then he would use Job's friends to do the same. And here, Job is just defending his status and identity before God. And later, the accuser would go on to do the same with Jesus when he was tempting him in the wilderness. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple so the angels will catch you. But Jesus couldn't deny himself. He couldn't deny his own status and identity and how he was in the Father and the Father was in him. And so he sent Satan away as the loser that he is. Have we ever thought of that? Satan has already lost. The enemy and all of our accusers have already lost. Right? We approach God from victory, not just to victory. It's both. This is something that we ought to remember in response to Satan, the accuser of God's people. The Lord has accomplished and given us an indestructible weapon against him and his followers. Because all of your sins have been atoned for. Christ now sits in heaven, granting you power, granting you wisdom. And he grants you all the weapons needed against the accuser. When he is accusing you and brings up all of your sins, past and present, you can remind him and remind yourselves of this verse from Revelation chapter 12. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him. How? And with what? With their own righteousness? With their own cleverness? With their own methods of avoiding and defeating temptation? No. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Their testimony about Christ. It is finished. Listen to what Paul said to the Corinthians. Who are a messed up group, by the way. You were washed. You were sanctified. That means to be set apart. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And notice how it's in the past. Past tense. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. You can't undo or redo it. And you can't improve upon it. It's already been done. You either were or you weren't. And if you were, beloved, hold fast to this truth. Also, this is a warning to those who rage and plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed and all those who have taken refuge in his anointed, the Christ. Because there's a battle going on right now against 
Christianity today. And it has been going on since the church's early beginnings. Often Christians act like we're surprised. We act like this is something new. There's nothing new under the sun. But we must remember it is a spiritual battle first and foremost. Now this spiritual battle takes the form of outright attacks against the church and her doctrine. There are those who want to put us in jail for taking a firm stand for the truth of the scriptures. Truths like there are only two sexes. Although we understand and are sensitive that there are those who are born with complications. But the exception to the rule cannot become the rule. Or the truth of the reality of sin and punishment for sin, including the sin of homosexuality. But also this spiritual battle can take the form of false teaching in the church by those who don't even know that what they're teaching is false and damnable. Consider Job's friends. They thought they were speaking for God and doing a good thing for Job when they were really speaking for Satan, the accuser, as they were a group of little accusers. Aren't we, as the church, being accused today of being unloving and of emotional and mental abuse because we cannot accept their teaching? Can you believe that there are teachers in so-called churches teaching that God is non-binary? Whatever that means. Ignoring the fact that Jesus calls God his father. Obviously they don't know who God is. And it's not a joke. It's blasphemous. It's blasphemous and damnable. There needs to be correction. While, on the other hand, there are teachers teaching from the pulpit that chattel slavery was a good thing when it came to race relations. We should go back to that arrangement. Many slaves were treated well, according to them. They were given food, education, clothing, more than they have now. They had everything except for freedom, of course. I know many of you are of Scottish blood. Would you accept that? I know it's not historically accurate. You ever watch Braveheart? While others are teaching that women are ontologically, when I say ontologically, I'm talking about their essence of who they are, that women are ontologically inferior to men. That, That doesn't mean just physical traits or different roles or how they're called to submit to their husbands. No, this is talking about the essence of who they are. That they're pretty much not man made in the image of God. The word man can encompass both men and women, by the way. We don't need to add man and woman in the Bible. Man encompasses both man and woman. And so this would interpret Genesis 1 and 2 that women were made in the image of God, but not really, just a little bit. So now you can justify the abuse of women because they're not really made fully in the image of God. That was the argument against blacks during chattel slavery. They weren't made fully in the image of God, just a little bit. And so they justify the abuse. We thought we have gotten over the error of false teaching and attacks on the church, but it is just ramping up as of late. 
both from within and from without, coming up with all sorts of weird ideas. And oftentimes, though it's a spiritual battle and a lot of people don't know, we think they will get away with false teaching because they just don't know. Well, Job's friends will be corrected. At times, it may appear that the enemy or the enemies are winning. But this will not last for long because God is just. Job was warning his friends that God is just and his justifier. And one day there will be a reckoning for how they dealt with the child of God. That's a warning for all of us. That we are not led astray by weird and unbiblical teachings. And imposing these ideas on the next generation. And when it seems that these cards are stacked against us and all seems hopeless, our enemies are so-called winning, worldly speaking. We are to remember the victory that has already been won in Christ Jesus. And one day we will realize that victory in full measure as he will soon crush Satan, our greatest accuser, under our feet. Amen.